I'm going to ask you now to turn your attention to Mark chapter 12. If you're a guest, we've been working through the gospel of Mark, and for all of us, let me just remind us for just a moment about the glory of this book. This was the first gospel written about the Lord Jesus Christ. This, that means it's the oldest document in the New Testament that focuses exclusively on the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior. The man that wrote it, John Mark, was a disciple of the Apostle Peter. John Mark was not one of the twelve. Most of what John knew about Jesus, he learned from Peter, listening to Peter preach and listening to Peter teach. And he took the sermons that Peter preached, the lessons that Peter taught, and he constructed what we know to be the Gospel of Mark. And he wrote it strategically, intentionally, in order to highlight for us the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he did. He chose each story very, very carefully. And he constructed it with the utmost care in order to communicate to his original audience and to us thoughts that we should learn, theology that we should grasp, truth that we could understand about Jesus. Well, this morning, I want us to take a look at a passage that I've entitled, A Study in Contrast. Arrogant leaders, a confrontational savior, and an impoverished widow. Begin with me in Mark chapter 12. Let me begin reading in verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and chief seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples, he said to him, he said, calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, This poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. When you compare these two stories to the Gospel of Matthew, it's it's very interesting how they're similar and how they are dissimilar. We've just finished up a series of questions between Jesus and his opponents. Five questions. Four that were put to Jesus, trying to trip him up, trap him, humiliate him, embarrass him in front of the crowds. The final question by Jesus to his opponents, and he silenced them. Both in Matthew and in Mark, those Those questions were followed up by Jesus' denunciation of the religious leaders. The difference is Matthew has 39 verses, 
Mark has three verses. Matthew is much more expansive and elaborate and detailed and descriptive of the, of the seven woes that, that Jesus pronounced on the Pharisees and the scribes. Mark is much more condensed, much more, much more intense. What Matthew describes in 39 verses, Mark describes in three verses. And in fact, we'll, three, we'll see that he highlights three particular sins the religious leaders were guilty of. Matthew immediately moves from the denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees in 39 verses to what's known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus prophesies that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and that he is going to come again. But you'll notice what Mark does. Mark does that, but not until he inserts a story about an impoverished widow who made a significant sacrificial contribution of her resources to the temple. Matthew doesn't tell this story. So why has Mark included it? Mark included it because Mark wants us to see a contrast between the religious leaders and this widow woman. For example, their men, obviously, she's a lady. They would have been very well educated. She would have had a very rudimentary education. They were highly respected, highly regarded, immediately recognized by by people who saw them in the marketplace or in the temple. She was a insignificant person that would have been unnoticed and looked over as she made her way through the temple and the, and the marketplace. They were theologically sophisticated. They had memorized much of the Old Testament. She might not have even been able to read. Jesus condemns them and say that they are on the verge of eternal damnation, but this is a woman that is to be emulated and and copied. One are condemned and one is exalted. The ones that are condemned, it's stunning, it's shocking. It's the ones that are most revered and respected by the people. The one that is to be emulated and imitated is the one that nobody would have ever noticed. I want you to notice first that Jesus is disgusted by hypocrisy and pride. And we should beware of that. Jesus is disgusted by hypocrisy and pride and we should be aware of that. What what Matthew has 39 verses, Mark has three, but there are three pointed verses that accentuate and highlight what it is that that Jesus found so repulsive about the religious leaders. First, they were selfishly ambitious. They were selfishly ambitious. Look back in verse 38. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. He says, beware of them. 
They want the honor and the respect and the admiration and the adulation of men rather than God. They like to be recognized for who they are and what they've accomplished. So they they wear those long robes so that when you come across them, you give them the right kind of respect and the right kind of reverence and the right kind of greeting that someone with that kind of theological education deserves. Well, they demonstrated very little concern for those they taught and for those they were called to shepherd. This isn't the only time that Jesus condemned these people. In John chapter 5 and verse 44, Jesus said to them, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? You live your life for human recognition and give little concern about the recognition that really matters, the recognition that comes from God. John chapter 12 verse 43 For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They would rather have a pat on the back. They would rather have a placard from a man than they would to know that God was pleased with them. They were selfishly ambitious. Second, they were disgustingly arrogant. They were disgustingly arrogant. That is, they wanted the best seats in the synagogue and they wanted the finest tables at the dinner party. Whether it was in a religious setting where they wanted to sit in just the seat that was reserved for people of prominence, or whether it was to be at the head table at a social gathering, they demanded pride of place. They wanted to be recognized and seen for who they really were. And they deserved the best seat. They deserved the table of honor. They deserved distinction and acknowledgement as people of great accomplishment. They were disgustingly arrogant. And if you were to ask them who their friends were, their friends were people just like them, movers and shakers. People that lived in the right neighborhood, the right zip code, their kids went to the right schools, they drove the right kind of cars, they wore the right kind of clothing. And yet, if you compare them to Jesus, Jesus was a friend of sinners, a friend of outcasts. If you were to go to Luke chapter 14... Jesus taught, if you were invited to a party, don't go sit in the best seat. Sit in a humble place. And if you threw a party, don't just invite people like yourself. Invite the poor, the blind, the lame, the outcast. He condemned them because they were disgustingly arrogant And third, they were notoriously greedy. They were notoriously greedy. Look in verse 40. They took advantage advantage of, of those who needed their help the most. Who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. They preyed on the most vulnerable, the widow. 
What Jesus has done in such a few words is he has exposed the heart of those who were the most theologically sophisticated in the ancient world and knew the Bible better than any other people in the ancient world, who prayed more than any people in the ancient world, and he lays bare their crooked hearts. Their greed caused them to devour widows' houses. We don't know exactly what that means, but it means they preyed on one of the most vulnerable of groups in the ancient world. And yet, it's easy for us to condemn them and to realize that this same insatiable longing, this same intense desire that drives us to ambition that is beyond what God would want us to exhibit. The arrogance that causes us only to associate with people in a certain socioeconomic or educational setting, background comparable to ours, that clings tenaciously to our income while sacrificially giving only the smallest of amounts, We need to understand that that's not just true of those who are hypocrites, but it can be true of those who really do love Jesus. There is within the human heart this insatiable longing for more, more notoriety, more prestige, more possessions. You see, we don't We don't intend to go that way. We just slowly drift that way. We don't intend to become like that. And we don't become like that overnight. It happens gradually. It happens unconsciously. Jesus has already addressed the disciples about these things. Back in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. See, Jesus is, he's like the CIA. He's always listening in. There's no private conversations. What what were you talking about on the way back there while you were whispering under your breath? Well, they're too embarrassed. Now, these aren't religious hypocrites. These aren't the scribes or the Pharisees. These were the 12 men that he had chosen to be his followers. These were the 12 men that had, that had left so much behind to walk the dusty roads of Palestine with him. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all. And servant of all. But you know, that kind of teaching doesn't sink in because you don't find many leadership books that tell you the way to become great is by being a servant. And so in chapter 10, the very next chapter, again, verse 42, Jesus calls them to himself and said to them, 
You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them? That's the way it works in the business world. That's the way it works in the corporate world. That's the way it, that works in the professional world. There are perks to moving up the ladder, and one of the perks is you can manipulate and coerce and maneuver people in whatever way you want to. But Jesus says it's not to be this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. That's the same thing he said in chapter 9. The first will be last, the last will be first. Find that in a, in a leadership book for me. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, not many of us are in positions of religious leadership, comparable to what we see in the text this morning. Some of us are in positions of, of religious position, and others among us, a few of here today, are, are training to be in positions of religious leadership. But, but most of us aren't in positions of leadership comparable to those in the text. So the question is, does the text have anything to say to me? I'm a, I'm a housewife. I'm a, I'm a mechanic. I'm not a, a deacon of the church. I'm not on, on ministerial staff. I don't teach a BFG. I'm not a, a prayer coordinator in a BFG. I, I'm just a, a member of the congregation, and I, I love the church, and I try to find my place to serve in the church, but I'm not in a position of leadership. The church, it must not say anything to me. It must not have any, any, any relevance for me. But that's not true. How do you treat your spouse at home? Do you highlight their weaknesses and minimize their strengths? Or do you find that you compliment them much, much more than you criticize them? Do you find that on the job that you look for ways to serve fellow employees rather than use fellow employees? Are you, are you seeking to be great in the kingdom, which is a good thing, by being the servant of all, or do you find yourself a manipulator? Do you find yourself a criticizer? If the Lord were to walk into the break room and say, what were you talking about over there? Would it be that you would be accentuating the strengths of someone or depreciating their weakness? Do you find when you get home from a hard day at the, at the office that you just need to relax while your wife has been home cleaning and cooking and caring for your children? I need to go into my study for a few days. I'll be out on Saturday. Or do you find that that's not a time for you to recoup. You're, you're to be geared up, and when you walk in that door, you serve your wife and your children and your family by engaging them and loving them and playing with them and ministering to them. And then you go to bed exhausted and tired and worn out, and you get a, a four, five, six hours night's sleep, and you go back and you do it again the next day to the glory of God. You see, they were selfishly ambitious, disgustingly arrogant, and notoriously greedy. 
And yet in the very next story, there's someone so unlike them. The very next story is intended to draw a contrast between this quote-unquote insignificant, inconsequential, speaking from the world's perspective, invisible person, this small person from the world's eyes, whom God commends as an unbelievable example of sacrifice. Jesus is sitting in the court of the women, which is where the offerings would have been, the offering boxes would have been 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles. You could give free will offerings, you could give temple offerings, there were the, the various offerings that could be, be given there in the temple. Gentiles weren't allowed into the court of the women, just Jewish men and Jewish women, and, and Jesus is there on a bench, and what's he doing? He's watching people giving their offering. Now, the, the trumpet-shaped receptacles were such that when you dropped in a lot of coins, you could hear the reverberation of it inside the receptacle as it would cling the other coins that were in the chest. And when you put in a lot, there would be the reverberation of that, and people would probably hear that and stop and look, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a rich man who really loves Jesus or really loves God because there he is giving a lot of money. And then you watch this little elderly lady come in and she drops in what's comparable to one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Two small coins, it says. It, it would have been a single coin, one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius was equal to one day's wage for a common laborer. So the ma- amount she gives isn't even enough to buy a small amount of food for, the, for a, a single meal for a single person. It's so small. And Jesus sees her drop these two coins in. And he says, this is, an, this is an instructive moment. This is an opportunity to teach. And so he calls the disciples over. And he uses it as an opportunity to teach three lessons about giving. The first lesson is this, that our giving is to be measured by proportion, not addition. By proportion, not addition. You see, the the wealthy people gave large amounts of money, but Jesus didn't find that very significant because proportionally speaking, they gave very little. While this widow who gave very little, proportionally speaking, gave much more from a kingdom perspective than the wealthy people. Paul described the very same thing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He was trying to motivate them to be sacrificial and generous in their giving. So he talked about the Macedonian Christians that were poor and impoverished. And this is what he said, that in a great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support 
of the saints. Now get this, this is an impoverished people begging Paul, let us do more, let us give more. Paul's saying, no, you've you've already given enough. No, you you can't afford to do this. And he said, no, we've got to give more. Help us to give, let us give more. You see, our, our giving is to be measured by proportion, not addition. Second, our giving is not measured by amount, but by sacrifice. Our giving is not measured by amount, but by sacrifice. It's possible for someone that is wealthy to give a very significant amount of money, but it not impinge very much on their income at all. While other people give a much smaller amount, which is a higher percentage of their income, which really causes them to have to get out the pencil and paper and and redo their budget. They're not able to go on the same style vacation that people that make the same income that they make go on because they don't have that amount of money to take vacation. They can't shop at the same stores. They can't drive the same cars. They can't go in the same restaurants. They can't buy the same clothes. They can't, they can't go to the same schools because their giving impinges upon their lifestyle choices. Our giving is not measured by amount, but by sacrifice. That's completely different than the way we usually think, isn't it? We think the more you give, the more you're revered by God. But giving a lot of money, when you've got a lot of money to give, and it doesn't impinge upon your lifestyle, isn't really much giving at all. While others of us, we might give... what seems to be an inconsequential amount, but it really stretches us. That really pleases God. The third thought is this. Our giving is always in the sight of Jesus. It it seems like he's very nosy, isn't it? He's listening in to our private conversations, and he's overseeing as we write our checks for giving. It's always in the sight of Jesus. That's why giving can be such an act of worship. You may give online. You're a businessman, maybe you travel a lot and you find it easier, and and a lot of people in our church give online. It's easier, it's more regular. There are a lot of reasons that they do it, but it can be an act of worship or it can be an act of rote memory. How do you make it an act of worship? When you sit down at your desk, whether it's in a hotel room or in your study at the house, and you get ready to to move that money over from your account into the church account, just stop and think about what you're doing for a moment. Tell the Lord, Lord, I'm getting ready to move this over, but I want you to know I do it out of love for you. I love you. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I love you because I'm going to give more than my my financial advisor would say is reasonable. I'm going to give you more than my my father would think is, is reasonable. I'm going to give you more than what people think I ought to give you because I love you and I trust you. And if it means I've got to... Step down here or there, I want you to know I'm going to do it for you. Or whether it's passing and you give here at the, at the church like we do. We, 
twice a month. And as you, you drop it in, you can drop it in, or you can, as you drop it in, just say in your heart, Lord, I love you. This is an expression of love to you. I want you to know I love you. So whether you give online or whether you give in the church, our giving is always in the sight of Jesus. So there's two kinds of people to emulate here. And things don't always work out the way we think they will. The brightest, the most gifted, the most theologically sophisticated, the most biblically literate are not the ones to emulate in our passage today. It's the quote-unquote, the little person who lives their life for Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of commitment, and as you're standing and singing, it may be that you'd like to talk with someone about your spiritual condition. If you come to the front, there'd be staff members here that would love to talk with you. Maybe you would come forward like in the first service and You'd like to just say, hey, I, I, want to, I want to join this church. I've been coming. I've been visiting. I'm, I'm ready to take the next step. We'll introduce you to someone that can, that can help you with that step. Or maybe where you're standing and singing, you would just pause momentarily and close your eyes or stop singing and just say, Lord, do I treat my wife or my husband or my children, like the religious leaders treated the people that they were supposed to shepherd and care for. Or maybe you would just pause and say, Lord, am I, am I a critical person? Do I accentuate people's weaknesses more than I highlight their strengths? And you would just confess that as sin. And make a determined effort to reverse that habit. Or maybe you would just say, Lord, I I know I can give a little bit more. We've already taken the offering this week, but I I want you to know I'm going to go home. I'm going to redo my budget just a little bit. I don't know where it's going to come from, but I'll I'll at least look at it with a prayerful eye under your leadership. And and you guide me if you want want me to give more or not. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand, and I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you today that your word is, it's really written written for the average person, people like us. And Lord, take, take the things that we've talked about that are clear in the text and make them real in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.